This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. The legal information presented on In Legal Terms is meant to provide general information about the topics discussed and is not necessarily the opinion of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. The information conveyed does not create any type of attorney-client relationship. Please consult an attorney provider before making any decisions about your specific legal questions. Welcome to In Legal Terms from MPB Think Radio, the show all about you and your rights. I'm Liz Gill with Professor Richard Gershon of the University of Mississippi School of Law. Good morning, Professor Gershon. Good morning, Liz. It is uh, great uh, to be here this morning. And, you know, we had a call. We, we had a call in show at the end of last year asking our listeners what kinds of topics they want us to cover. And a caller said legal ethics. And, you know, when when they made that call, I thought, uh, you know, we have we have a great um, program here. And my, my great colleague, uh, Ben Cooper, our associate dean, teaches legal ethics. But I also thought there's actually a, a, someone I know um, who has started or was the first chair in ethics of a, an actual uh, center for legal ethics and professionalism at Mercer University. And that is Pat Long. And so. It is great to have Patrick Long in here from the University, Mercer University School of Law on the show this week. And Pat, would you please tell our listeners a little bit about your background and how you came in, became interested in ethics and professionalism? Sure, Richard, thank, and thank you for having me. Well, I, I grew up in, in Texas and went off to college and law school uh, in the Midwest. And I, unlike most law students, I went to law school with the intention of eventually becoming a law professor. But the, the usual career path for professors is to clerk for a judge and then practice for a, for a few years. And so that's what I did. And I went back home to Dallas uh, to begin practicing. And I was with a big firm there. I was doing civil litigation for the most part, really enjoying it. But, but I was young and I had gone straight through school. So I suppose I was a bit naive and it had never dawned on me that in practice, lawyers would lie to me. Uh, or would lie to a judge, or would yell and scream at me uh, in depositions. Uh, but all of those things happened uh, pretty quickly. And, and frankly, in all of my naivete, I was kind of shocked and, and disillusioned. So when the chance to become a professor came, thanks in no small part to Professor Gershon, uh, I, I knew that one of the things I wanted to do was to explore these questions of ethics and professionalism, do my part to improve the profession. And at the very least, I knew I wanted to make sure that none of my students would ever be as shocked and disillusioned as I was. So eventually the chance came for me to go to Mercer and those subjects have been uh, my focus ever since for the last 21 years. And in fact, when you went to Mercer, you were the first chair and still hold that chair, uh, the Justice Boodle chair in ethics and professionalism. And uh, you are the director of the Center for Legal Ethics and Professionalism. What, what are the goals of that center? Well, the, the purpose of the center is, is really very simple. I mean, it's to improve the ethics and professionalism of students, lawyers, and judges. And, you know, we try to do that by uh, facilitating the teaching about ethics and professionalism, both to students and to lawyers, and by playing a role in promoting scholarship. So let me give you just a couple of examples. Uh, we created a first-year law school course on professionalism for Mercer students. We've been doing that for 17 years now. We were the first in the country to do it quite that way. 
Um, and we, we can talk more about that course, but uh, we made all of our uh, materials available, open source on the web for any school that wanted to do anything like it. Uh, and now there's more than 60 law schools uh, with some kind of first year course or program that deal with professional identity or professional values. Now that's, that's not due just to us uh, by any means, but at the center, we've been part of that movement. On the, on the scholarship side, uh, we hold regular uh, symposium on ethics and professionalism. So uh, for example, just in October, uh, my colleague Jim Fleissner and I uh, hosted a symposium on a very timely topic, uh, ethics, professionalism, and the role of the Attorney General of the United States. Uh, William Barr's time as Attorney General had been criticized for him ignoring uh, some professional norms. So we thought it'd be a good time to have that symposium and publish scholarship on that topic. So those are just a couple of examples of the kinds of things we do on the teaching side and on the scholarship side. And you also interact a lot with the uh, with the practicing bar and judges themselves. I mean, one of the things uh, you are on the State Bar of Georgia's Formal Advisory Opinion Board and also its uh, Dis Disciplinary Rules and Procedures Committee. And you're also a special master. So you hear disciplinary cases filed against lawyers. Um, has that helped your program to be so connected to the bar and the judiciary? Well, it, it really has uh, in lots of ways. It, personally, uh, it's helped me to stay in touch with the practice. I mean, I haven't practiced law full time since 1991. Uh, and it, it'd be pretty easy, uh, you know, when I was practicing law, we didn't have voicemail, all right? So if that gives you any idea of how much things have changed. So it's important for me to have a way to stay in touch with what's going on uh, out there with the lawyers who are actually practicing. But it also enables me to make contacts with, with lawyers and judges who will be great uh, examples for our students. Uh, and I bring them to uh, the classroom and I, I interview them and have them talk about their lives uh, because students, you know, they're, they're hungry to, to meet people who are living the lives that they, they want to live. Uh, and most of them don't want to be professors. They, they want to be lawyers. And so to, to have the opportunity to hear from people who are doing what they want to do and who are happy about it and ethical in the way they do it is, is a wonderful thing. And I couldn't do that if I didn't have an opportunity to, to meet and interact with, practicing lawyers and judges. Well, that, I mean, it's, it really is so important, you know, for all of our law students. Um, and when, what do you see generally, I know we're going to talk about some specifics, but what, what do you see as the biggest ethical challenges for lawyers uh, in, in your, in your dealings with the bar? Yeah. Well, you know, how, how long do you have? Um, <laughs> there's, uh, there's any number of problems. I, I will say that generally, I think the, the hardest problems for lawyers come from the fact that we we ask them to play so many conflicting roles at the same time. And uh, lawyers are representatives of clients who have the right to expect loyalty and uh, to have a right to expect the lawyers to be vigorous in representing them. At the same time, lawyers serve as officers of the court. And so they have to they have competing duties uh, to the system of justice. And at the same time, we expect lawyers to get along with each other. Uh, if lawyers can't get along with each other, the system uh, collapses. And so at one time, we say to the, the lawyers, you've got to be an advocate, you've got to be an officer of the court, and you've got to be a courteous adversary. Uh, those can conflict. Uh, and so the, the idea that as a lawyer, you have to do all of those things at the same time, I think, creates some inevitable um, ethical tension. 
uh, and uh, and and that's where a lot of the problems come in. And you know, the it seems like the expectations of clients too. You know that uh, um, a client wants you to fight for every square inch sometimes, uh, especially in you know some areas like domestic relations, things like that. Whereas maybe that's not always in their best interest. Maybe you know, as a counselor, you know, you you have to help them back down, but they don't always really want that to happen it seems well i think that's right and 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 this is not to to blame clients for wanting their lawyers to to be vigorous champions for them goodness gracious they you know they're mostly in times of great uh, strife and great great uh, stress and so they need a champion but it's really up to the lawyer to, to educate the client about what they um have what they should expect but they have a right to expect the role that the lawyer is going to play uh, and make sure the client understands that, yes, I am your champion, but I have these competing responsibilities. So um, uh, it's it's a matter of really, in that sense, the lawyers educating the clients about the lawyer's proper role. That's it. Communication. You know, that's the, uh, you know, the, the, the one thing I always try to tell my students is, you know, that really, if you just talk to your let your clients know what's happening. Right. Um, you know, and, and keep them informed and why you're doing things that will get you out of trouble most often. Well, I think that's right. Most, most of the, um, the complaints that the bar gets about lawyers is that they're not communicative enough. And so you need to be uh, attentive. You need to be communicative. And, uh, you also, you know, have to be, you know, courageous enough to communicate difficult things. Right. You have to give bad news. Sometimes you have to explain that there are things you can't do or or won't do uh, in, in their service. And so, you know, it, it takes some experience. Often it takes some some training. It takes some courage to do it the right way. You can send us an email with your questions. Legal terms at mpbonline.org. We're discussing ethical training and conduct of attorneys. Where can you hear more about attorney ethics in Mississippi, I'm going to tell you next. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. You can now listen to the wild, weird, and wonderful stories of Mississippi with Mile Marker. The first question that we get when someone comes in is, how is the Ulysses S. Grant Presidential Library in Mississippi? Join me as we hit the roads of Mississippi on Mile Marker. We have every letter Grant ever wrote and every letter ever written to him. You can listen by going to mpbonline.org slash radio or by using your favorite podcasting app, Mile Marker, a Mississippi Roads podcast. This is In Legal Terms. Now, not everyone has a chance to listen to our whole show live. So if you've missed any of our program, you can hear the whole show 
on our website, inlegalterms.mpbonline.org. It's also available on the MPB Public Media app, as are all our local shows. I'm Liz Gill. I'm here with Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. And to hear more about attorney ethics in Mississippi, you might want to find the In Legal Terms podcast way back August 29th, 2017, entitled Attorney Ethics. This morning, we're talking about legal ethics and professionalism with Professor Patrick Longan, Chair in Ethics and Professionalism for a Mercer University School of Law, and we do have a call. Let's go to Mabin and speak with Richard. Richard, thanks so much for being a part of In Legal Terms today while we talk about ethics. I'm not sure my question really involves ethics that much. Uh, a few years ago, I was involved in a divorce. And it became clear after the divorce was final and everything was settled that she, that uh, my spouse had lied as well as uh, hidden certain financial irregularities. Uh, can divorce decrees be revisited? Well, Richard, that's a, that's a great question. I think, you know, really... Um this would be one for uh, probably my colleague, Debbie Bell, our uh, wonderful family yeah. law professor. Um, you know, I do think, you know, that's that's something that um, in terms of ethics is something lawyers face. Uh, Pat, wouldn't you agree that uh, sometimes your clients lie to you and we don't always know that? Well, that's right. The, uh, the lawyer's obligation, certainly one of the primary ones, is that you do not present false evidence uh, in court if you know that it is false. But when that happens, uh, it, uh, most commonly, the lawyer doesn't know uh, that it's false. Uh, and so the question then becomes, you know, what do you do about it uh, if, as a lawyer, you find out after the fact that uh, you, know, you have, without knowing it, presented false evidence? Interestingly, in, in, in terms of the particular uh, question, the lawyer's obligation to do something about that ends when the case ends. Uh, so that if the case has run its uh, to its uh, conclusion and the appeals have, have run, and then the lawyer finds out, uh, the lawyer can try to do something about it, but the lawyer is under no obligation to do so. Yeah, it's a, it's a tough situation, Richard. We hope maybe uh, maybe a lawyer can help you uh, who does family law can help you at least answer your question. Um, thank you for that call. Richard, we would love for you to send us an email. Then we'll get that to an attorney who can address that. Remember, our email address is legalterms at mpbonline.org. We are talking with Professor Patrick Longan. And tell us how your center works with the law students at your law school. Well, the primary way that we work uh, with the law students is through the uh, first year course uh, that uh, the, the center has uh, created. You know, every law school in the country is required by um, the accreditation standards of the American Bar Association to teach a course in legal ethics. And almost always that is a course in the rules of conduct. At Mercer, we decided 17 years ago that we wanted to do something in addition to that. 
And so we created a, a first year course on the legal profession. Uh, I teach that along with my colleagues, uh, uh, Tim Floyd and Daisy Floyd. Uh, we've written a book about uh, what we uh, have been doing in that course called The Formation of Professional Identity, The Path from Student to Lawyer. But in that course, we look not so much just at the, the rules uh, as we do at uh, deeper things. We, we look at what does it mean to be uh, the ideal lawyer? What kind of uh, character traits, what kind of virtues does the ideal lawyer have? Uh, we draw on moral philosophy. We draw on moral psychology. Uh, and we try to help give the students a, a deep understanding and a good vocabulary early in their time in law school to understand what professionalism, now more commonly referred to as professional identity, what it really means, uh, why it matters, and why it's so important for them to understand it and to strive to be uh, the right kind of lawyer. And, and, you know, Pat, one thing that I've noticed over, you know, the last several years, you know, a couple of decades really is that one thing that's changed is that we do a lot of training now in dealing with um, substance abuse issues and, and mental health issues because, you know, it used to be uh, if, if, a, if a law student uh, had a mental health issue, for example, they were better off not, re not going to get help for it because they would have to report that to the bar as they applied for, for bar admission and they might be kept out because they, they sought help for their mental health uh, issues. Uh, I think has the bar, you think, has, in your uh, experience, has the bar become more um, open to dealing with those issues in a more direct way? Well, I think, that, yes. Uh, and it's important to realize that so many complaints that uh, clients justifiably have about lawyers, when lawyers commit serious misconduct, so often at the root of that is a problem of, of mental health or substance abuse or both. And so it is a real problem for the lawyers. It is a real problem for the clients and the public as well. The solution to that is, is not to have incentives for people not to get help. Goodness gracious. I mean, what you want is uh, for students and lawyers to uh, be encouraged to seek the help that they need before they do uh, damage uh, and to make those resources available to them. And generally speaking, I will say the bar uh, has been uh, very good about, and it's got, gotten better over the last uh, 20 years, as you say, uh, about making resources available for lawyers to uh, obtain help with exactly those kinds of issues. I mean, in Mississippi, we have the Lawyers and Judges Assistance Program. I'm sure you've got a similar thing in, in Georgia where you can report. Uh, we have to report misconduct by lawyers. So if I know a lawyer's got a substance abuse issue, I, I'm obligated as a lawyer to report that lawyer. But now instead of um, getting going straight to a disciplinary hearing, they, they have a chance to, to get help. Yeah, in Georgia, we have the Lawyers Assistance Program. We uh, Interestingly, we don't have the mandatory reporting obligation that you just mentioned. That does differ around the country. But um, through the Lawyers Assistance Program, any member of the State Bar of Georgia uh, has a certain number of, of, of fr uh, essentially free visits with a, a therapist uh, of the appropriate kind so that there's no uh, financial uh, impediment uh, to obtaining the help that you need when you need it. And actually, I am. It's interesting. I'm not licensed in Mississippi. I'm licensed in Florida. So I was really referring to my, my Florida obligation as a Florida lawyer. Um, but uh, yeah, so that I think that's been a, a big step forward. So when you talk about uh, 
ethical. We used to just think about the rules, as you said, that we, you know, we would learn the, the ABA rules uh, for lawyers and the state bar the rules for lawyers. Now there's so much more and including a lot of, uh, a lot of bars now require uh, training in technology as well. So, you know, the practice has definitely, has definitely changed. So uh, what, 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 take us through your first year class. I'm, I'm intrigued about that. What, so how, how do you teach somebody morals and ethics? <laughs> well, uh, the first thing you have to do for law students, I think, is to give them a structure and a vocabulary for analyzing and talking about uh, these issues. And then you've got to give them an opportunity to talk about it. Uh, and these are things we've learned over you know the last 17 years of doing this course. When we first started, it it, it wasn't very good. We were trying to invent something. I think it has uh, it has improved. But essentially, what we do is we start by helping the students understand what it would mean to be quote unquote the ideal lawyer. What what kind of character would the ideal lawyer have? And we've done a lot of research about this, about what uh, various bar associations and courts. Uh, uh, have said, and essentially we boiled it down to seven, uh, six things. Uh, the ideal lawyer is competent. Technology is now part of that. Uh, the ideal lawyer has fidelity to the client. Uh, the ideal lawyer has fidelity to the law, right? And those can come into conflict. The uh, ideal lawyer is public spirited. So the, for example, pro bono service. Uh, the ideal lawyer has civility, get along with other lawyers. And then finally, to make it all work together, the ideal lawyer has practical wisdom uh, to be able to decide in a particular circumstance what to do. And the roots of this kind of analysis go all the way back to Aristotle. Uh, and um, so we take the students through this, um, this notion of what the ideal lawyer should look like, what virtues the ideal lawyer would have. We talk about what gets in the way, why do lawyers stray? Why is it hard sometimes to, to live up to that ideal? But then over the course of the semester, we have discussion groups, about 25 apiece, and we present ethical dilemmas. And we allow the students to essentially process those dilemmas using the structure and vocabulary that we've given them so that they can practice being a lawyer. They can practice dealing with the deeper questions of ethics and professionalism. So uh, it's something that, um, you know, we've had to learn by doing, learn by uh, trying things out, seeing some of them work, some of them don't. But we're, we're happy with where it is now. Uh, and, and those are, you know, most of the big uh, pieces uh, of the course. Professor Longin, I, I love lists, but apparently I can't count very well because I only got six uh, characteristics of an ideal lawyer. You said right. uh, uh, competent, fidelity to client, fidelity to law, public spirited, civility, and practical wisdom. What did I miss? Uh, you missed me correcting myself when I first said seven. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it, it's six, and you'd think I'd be able to, to, to get that right, having taught this for decades and having written the book on it, but six is the number. Excellent. One thing that, that is, you know, and, and, and Pat is truly one of the most ethical and professional people I know. And, and, you know, the thing is that people have a, have a hard time with, I think students have a hard time with lawyers have a hard time with is when you make a mistake, you just say, I made a mistake. 
you know, it's the cover up that unfortunately gets people in trouble. So, uh, you know, Pat wants well, to prove it, <laughs> that he is an ethical person. And that's something go. we we do tell all of our hosts for our local shows on MPB Think Radio. If you don't know something, say you don't know it. Professor Gershon is not a divorce lawyer expert in Mississippi, so we encourage people to uh, send us an email so we can direct that. I know on our uh, automotive show, our mechanic is not a diesel mechanic, and so she always, you know, makes she she says flat out, "Well, that's something I don't know," and encourages people to get in contact with us so we can direct their question to someone who does. Email us. Our address is legalterms at mpbonline.org. We're talking about ethics in the legal profession with Professor Patrick Longan. Where can you read more about legal ethics? We told you where you could listen. Now we're going to tell you where you can read. I'm going to tell you that next. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Now listen to the wild, weird, and wonderful stories of Mississippi with Mile Marker. The first question that we get when someone comes in is, how is the Ulysses S. Grant Presidential Library in Mississippi? Join me as we hit the roads of Mississippi on Mile Marker. We have every letter Grant ever wrote and every letter ever written to him. You can listen by going to mpbonline.org slash radio or by using your favorite podcasting app. Mile Marker, a Mississippi Roads podcast. You're listening to In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. Professor Richard Gerson is our expert host. I'm Liz Gill. We hope that you have subscribed to our podcast. Lots and lots of different podcasting platforms out there. I happen to use Podcast Addict. I downloaded it to my Android phone because Apple phones already have one installed. I can touch the plus that takes me to look at the page to search for the thousands of different podcasts there are. I typed in in legal terms in the search area. It brought up our show in legal terms, and I was able to touch the photo, then subscribe, and now I'm notified when any new episodes are loaded up. This morning, we're talking about legal ethics and professionalism. Our guest is Professor Patrick Longan, Chair in Ethics and Professionalism from Mercer University School of Law. Our own Mississippi Bar Association has a web page where you can read more. It has ethics and discipline, ethics opinions, disciplinary process, lawyer trust account guidelines, professional professionalism, lawyer advertising rule 7.1, consumer assistance program, authorized practice of law and fee disputes. You can start your reading of that at msbar.org. 
We've also mentioned that our guest is an author. Patrick Longan has a couple of books available, Questions and Answers, Professional Responsibility, and also The Formation of Professional Identity, The Path from Student to Lawyer. So uh, as much as I plead, we try to get all of the legal students at the law school to listen to the podcast. So if they're listening, that might be a book they want to pick up. And and Liz, I I, uh, have a class in legal profession this semester, and I am going to post this podcast on our our site that we use to to interact this semester. Um, Really happy to have Pat Longer here. And, you know, we were talking during the break about uh, how easy sometimes it is for lawyers to make a mistake. You know, and and one might be, I don't think people realize this one, but let's say I I have uh, a trust account and I've earned a, a certain fee, and I don't take that fee out of the trust account, now I am technically commingling my money with my client's money. Well, Pat, that, that's a, uh, it clearly violates the ethical rules. Well, I get in deep trouble for that kind of thing. Well, the, the three major ways that lawyers get you know, significant discipline are trust account violations, um, a pattern of neglect of clients, uh, and by being convicted of felonies, so <laughs> we can it's it's in the top three. Now, one of the things that that matters in terms of what discipline is administered for any particular violation uh, is the state of mind. So, an intentional violation of the rules about trust accounts is going to be treated much more seriously than what you've described, which is inadvertent. Nevertheless, I mean, lawyers are expected to know the rules uh, and to ab- abide by the rules. The, the kinds of uh, serious discipline that I see related to trust accounts, it's actually a different kind of scenario, and it's a, it's a sad one, but it's where, you know, lawyers, through financial imprudence or, th- or things beyond their control, they get in a financial bind. And, you know, they have control over a, an account that has money in it. It's not their money, but they have control over it. And they will often tell themselves, well, I'm just going to borrow it. Uh, I'm going to put it back. Nobody will know the difference. I've got a big fee coming in next week and I'll just replace it. And then the fee doesn't come in and they end up borrowing from the trust account again. And the next thing you know, they've lost their license that they worked so hard to get all those years. We do have a call that we want to bring into the conversation. This is from Jackson. It's Bill. Bill, we're so glad you've called in to talk about ethics in the legal profession with us. What's your comment or question? Good morning. Thank you. Uh, my question, uh, what does ethics and uh, professionalism have to say about sore losers? Shouldn't uh, uh, lawyers who willfully deny election results to pander or incite uh, be sanctioned? Well, it's a, it's a great question and question that's on the minds of a lot of people uh, around the country right now. I will tell you that um, I'm not in a position to comment specifically about any of the, the cases challenging election results, but I can tell you that, that generally, yes, lawyers are bound by the rules of ethics when they bring cases in court. And court is not a place for uh, alternative facts. It's not a place for political spin. Uh, when you take a case to court, you've got to have a basis in law and fact that is not frivolous. When you talk to a judge, you can't make a material misstatement of law or fact. 
And if you do any of those things, you're subjecting yourselves to, to discipline. Now, again, I'm not saying that any particular lawyer in any particular election challenge that we've seen over the last uh, few weeks um, committed those violations. I, as I said, I haven't studied them enough to, to say. But in general, yes, uh, you know, lawyers are bound by the rules of ethics anytime they bring a case, including challenges to election results. But shouldn't the professional association uh, sanction uh, lawyers uh, who abuse uh, the truth in this way? Well, if, if they're found to have done so, sure. Uh, but there's a process, uh, and the process uh, uh, involves due process, even for the lawyers who are uh, accused. So the way that would typically work, for example, somebody would file a grievance with the state bar. Uh, the state bar would investigate it. And if they found that there was reason to believe there was a violation, uh, it uh, might get brought uh, as a complaint uh, in Georgia. Those are brought uh, in the Supreme Court of Georgia. And then there's a hearing and somebody uh, serves as special master and makes findings of fact and makes a recommendation. And at the end of the day, the Supreme Court decides whether uh, discipline uh, is appropriate. So it's it's possible. And if it is warranted, then it uh, then it should happen. But uh, just like there's a process for dealing with the uh, challenges to the elections, there's a process for dealing with claims that the lawyers overstep their boundaries. Patrick, that's interesting to me that it does move into the Georgia Supreme Court. It's not a Georgia Bar Association handles this internally, maybe in a closed setting. Well, that, that, that's not it at all. As a matter of fact, the State Bar of Georgia in our system serves essentially as the prosecutor. Uh, so the regulation of lawyers in Georgia and in and, and, and every state that I know about is under the purview of the, of the courts. And so the Supreme Court controls the admission and the discipline of uh, all uh, Georgia lawyers. Uh, if the State Bar wants to prosecute uh, a lawyer for a violation. They bring the case in the Supreme Court, and then it follows the usual processes. Here's a question for this. You said someone has to bring an objection. Could a judge bring an objection if they've noticed an individual, or do they have to whisper to someone, you know, in my courtroom, I've noticed so-and-so. Somebody should really bring up a, a complaint about them. No, in, in our system in Georgia, anybody uh, can uh, file a grievance. It is usually a former client that files a grievance for understandable reasons. Uh, it is sometimes a judge. Judges are in a position to observe certain kinds of misconduct and, um, and, and certainly have the power and sometimes exercise it to file uh, grievances. Um, in our system, judges are elected officials, and so there is, I think, some understandable reluctance to get too deeply into um, filing grievances against lawyers. But uh, but anybody uh, can file uh, a grievance. And in our system, in fact, the state bar doesn't have to wait for a grievance. Uh, if it becomes public knowledge that a certain kind of misconduct has occurred, they can begin an investigation on their own. Bill, we appreciate you calling in, just like we appreciate Joe from Memphis, who's called in to In Legal Terms. Joe, thanks for being part of our show, talking about ethics in the legal profession. Go ahead. Thank you. I do have an ethical question, and it probably could be a hypothetical situation, but it, I'm sure it could 
happened, and it deals with a lawyer-client privileges. How far can a lawyer keep a client's uh, statements private? And here's a situation I'm thinking about. Let's say that a lawyer uh, is talking to his client. The client admits to a, a serious crime that the police have not don't do not know he's committed, but someone else is in prison who is innocent, paying for that crime. Should the lawyer uh, make a statement to the police or somebody about that crime? What a wonderful question! And in fact, that's one of the first questions that I always put to my students when I teach uh, the rules of professional conduct. What the rules have to say about that may uh, surprise you uh, in that the the rules give, and here I'm talking about the model rules of conduct from the American Bar Association, they give the lawyer the option, not the requirement, but the option to reveal client confidences under certain circumstances. One of them is when the lawyer is reasonably certain that uh, if they don't reveal it, there's going to be reasonably certain death or substantial bodily harm to someone. Well, the subtlety in your hypothetical and in the one that I give my students is, can you say that it's reasonably certain that there's going to be substantial bodily harm from incarceration? I think there certainly are some strong arguments to say that there, uh, it is reasonably likely. If that's right, realize all that does is it gives the lawyer the option to reveal it, but there's no requirement that the lawyer do it. And, and Pat, isn't that really just, I mean, our, one of our great duties, a great call is keep our clients' confidence. I mean, they, our clients have to trust that we are their advocate. Um, you know, there are times when we do have to tell those secrets. If they're, if they're committing perjury on the stand and things like that, we may have to, but that's, it's, it's one of our highest duties to our clients. Well, it absolutely is. I mentioned one of the six, not seven, six uh, character traits of the ideal lawyer is fidelity to the client. A big part of that is confidentiality. Uh, we can't do our jobs uh, if the clients don't trust us uh, and the client isn't going to trust us uh, if there's not some very strict rules about confidentiality. So that's why those rules are there. Thank you, Joe. We appreciate you calling in. We've got another call coming from Wesson. It's Debbie. Debbie, thanks for being part of In Legal Terms today, talking about ethics in the legal profession. Go ahead. Thank you, dear. And I'm the one that requested this topic. Oh, good. (laughs) So in my own case, as far as myself and my children, a number of years ago, my mother was diagnosed with stage four inoperable pancreatic cancer. In calling to check on her medications, whether they were ready or not, she actually reached a lady that she had gone to Sunday school with uh, a, a couple of decades prior, who was an attorney and on the finance committee of the church. The woman came in, changed my mother's simple two-page will to something over 30-some-odd pages that my mother could not even take the time to read. She didn't have the energy to. When that will was redone, 
and the way that it was redone, things were set up in a trust that I nor my children could even approach until we ended up begging from every single source we could beg from. I want to make other people aware that this can happen, regardless of whether someone is an attorney or whether you think someone is a Christian or whether you think you might have known someone from before, that these things do happen. And I have found out in dealing with so many other things since that this is very prevalent. It's a very prevalent practice. Please, in the teaching that people do of ethics, those people who do take on these courses and responsibility of teaching, make sure your students understand the impropriety of this. Because there is absolutely no reason that a dying person should be manipulated and taken advantage of in such a way that it's still from what they wanted to do originally and from the people they wanted to protect and provide for. And then on paper, because of the way it's set up, it's still 50% along the way on paper as well while they have to spend the rest of their lives begging. Debbie, that you have a lot of pain, and I personally know from my father's will and shenanigans that you know when things get drawn out it it's it's lasting and it uh it, it that is a time when it can cause a lot of people a lot of pain that just doesn't go away um professor longan and and professor gershon are there any specifically directed ethics towards uh, attorneys address towards attorneys when making wills, or is it is it just part of the general overall attorney ethics? Well, a little bit of both. I, I'll say that uh, generally speaking, the lawyer's job uh, within the bounds of the law is to help the client achieve the client's objectives. Uh, it's not the lawyer's objectives. It's not uh, the you know, the, the church that the lawyer belongs to. It's not the church's objectives. It's the client's objectives. Now, sometimes those client objectives in this kind of a situation uh, can be real clear, but maybe things that people uh, later uh, don't like. Well, the, the lawyer's job is to achieve the client's objectives and to counsel the client about, you know, the consequences of those. This particular situation, though, raises something, um, you know, that's, can be common in this kind of work, uh, and that is that there may have been a capacity issue. And if there's a capacity issue, then the lawyer has some special responsibilities to detect that and then to try to deal with it, and if necessary, to try to take some action to protect the client uh, who may be uh, subjected to some improper influences. Now, when those improper influences are coming from the lawyer, uh, then that's improper on on many levels. But generally speaking, the lawyer uh, has at least the option in these circumstances to take action to protect the client from being manipulated. Thank you, Debbie, for, for highlighting that. And we hope everyone will take care of their seniors and 
bet all the attorneys that are listening to this will find it in their hearts to make sure they follow the right way. And if you, as they say, see something, say something, uh, you know, step up and, uh, you know, make a complaint. We're taking your questions by email. Our address is legalterms at mpbonline.org. Ethics is a current event in America, as our caller Bill mentioned. We'll comment more next. This is In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. contractor ever tell you of the price of something and it sounds so high you think eh, maybe i'll try it myself some jobs just aren't that difficult and yes you can do it if you want to find out how to do those things listen to fix it 101 podcast everywhere this podcast is a local production of mississippi public broadcasting and depends on the support of listeners like you if you can please donate today at mpbonline.org and thanks being part of In Legal Terms. If you've missed any of our program, you can listen to the whole show in legalterms.mpbonline.org. It's also available on the MPB Public Media app, as are all our local shows. I'm Liz Gill, here with Professor Richard Gershon from the University of Mississippi School of Law. At 11 a.m. Central on Tuesday, following our live show, you can hear Southern Remedy, Relatively Speaking, with Dr. Susan Buttress on MPB Think Radio. Now, ethics isn't just a dusty class to get through in college. It is current events in America. There have been ethics discussions around the attorneys challenging the November 3rd election and over attorneys working remotely due to the pandemic in jurisdictions where they aren't licensed. A couple of different ethics things going on right now. But today we're talking with Professor Patrick Longan, Chair in Ethics and Professionalism from Mercer University School of Law about legal ethics and professionalism. Right, and I think, you know, Pat and I were talking during the break about how, um, how, how was the center formed? I know, I remember you were teaching at Stetson Law School and beloved there, uh, and Mercer attracted you to this position. How did that center even get started? Well, it is, it's an interesting story with some irony. Uh, in the uh, late 1990s, uh, there was a significant litigation involving a fungicide called Benlate, uh, and the primary defendant in those cases was the DuPont Corporation, in one of those cases, there is a claim that uh, DuPont and its law firm engaged in some significant misconduct. 
And the claims were that uh, they had some documents that they were required to turn over and they, they didn't do it. So those um, allegations, uh, very serious allegations, ended up on the desk of Judge Hugh Lawson, a United States District Judge uh, in Macon. And he uh, had the idea and facilitated a settlement in which the lawyers admitted no wrongdoing and to this day say that there was no wrongdoing. But uh, DuPont uh, agreed to pay $10 million uh, split among four law schools in Georgia to endow academic chairs in ethics and professionalism. Well, Mercer got $2.5 million. They created the Boodle chair. I was lucky enough to get the job. And the faculty's decision was that the holder of the Boodle chair would create and direct the Center for Ethics and Professionalism. That's what I've been doing for the last 20 years. So... The irony is that uh, claims of very serious unprofessional conduct uh, led to the creation of positions and institutions that now for a couple of decades have been dedicated to promoting the opposite, uh, to promoting professional conduct. And we have Judge Lawson's courage and his ingenuity to thank for that. That's so important. And I think, you know, we, we talk about lawyer ethics and you and I have both unfortunately had former students who have gotten in trouble, but not many. Um, you know, I, I I hope that listeners understand that most lawyers really do care and are are ethical, and we want the profession to be strong. Has that been your experience as well? Oh yes, uh, and if they could uh, talk to the first year students that 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 I have, and and to hear the the idealism and the the commitment, the desire to to help and to do things the right way, I think everybody would be uh, very uplifted uh, by that. I mean, the the bad news gets the attention. Uh, but the good news uh, swamps the bad news uh, if you if you're paying enough attention to to, to hear it. And so, um, uh, I, I think people should have faith in their lawyers, and I think we have good reason to have faith in the the next generation of lawyers that we're bringing up now. Thank you, Professor Longan. We really appreciate you being with us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. That's going to wrap us up for today's In Legal Terms. We thank Michelle McAdoo for being our call screener and Jay White for being our engineer. And for Professor Richard Gershon, who hosts from the University of Mississippi School of Law, I'm Liz Gill. We hope that you'll join us next Tuesday live at 10 a.m. Central for In Legal Terms on MPB Think Radio. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast.